Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Don't forget, you can listen to my Times Radio show Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, on the Times Radio app. And it's now a, an award-nominated show as well. Uh, I've been shortlisted for Best Speech Presenter at the Arias, which is like the Oscars, uh, which means I think I have to punch someone if I, if I don't win. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you in a few weeks' time when I've lost out to someone from Five Eye for that. Right, coming up on today's podcast, then, I've been in the Times archive, uh, taking a look at, well, they're basically professional hoarders, letters from prime ministers, books that were bomb-damaged, and a f- camera uh, that took the very first aerial photos of Everest. Uh, really, really fascinating. Uh, um, feature coming up for you in just a moment. We'll do that after we do The Columnists. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yeah, for, for, for Friday means it must be night at the Marriott, but India night's not here. James Marriott is, though. Good morning, James. Good morning. And we're joined by, because we don't see her enough, <laughs> Lava Spitz. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Now, uh, Lava, you've been digging through the rubbish I have been, yeah. Thank you so much for this task. It's yes. So, oh, I think we've got some some bin bin related music. Uh, so, because yesterday was take out the trash day. Have either of you got any idea what this is? No. Good. Happens <laughs> <laughs> when we get young people in. It's a bit of Lonnie Donegan. Anyway. Uh, yeah. My old man's a dustman. It was take out the trash day yesterday. Uh, Lara Spit, you are our dustman. Uh, what were they taking out yesterday? Oh, in fact, you're, you're going to go through as many as you can uh, all of the announcements they tried to smuggle out. Basically, it's the last day of term. So yeah. the government dumps everything out there, hoping yeah. people won't notice. But luckily, you were watching. So uh, we're going to give you a, a clock and you're going to run through as many of the things they tried to smuggle out yesterday. Your time starts now. So there's revised financial directions for the NHS England. There was new foreign office allocations uh, and the announcement of vast cuts to our bilateral aid abroad. There was a second annual report on engagement with devolved administrations, new guidance on the use of non-corporate communication, uh, reports on departmental performance, which showed the government responded to fewer than half of MPs' letters on time, annual report on decommissioning relief deeds, which means an insight into who can, afford, who can avoid windfall taxes and by how much, transition of paternity investigation, responses to pension methodologies, de-designations of education... <laughs> I'm not even. I'm not even halfway. You're not even halfway. Not even halfway. I'm well, let's, so have the mu- sorry. let's have the music again. You can finish off your list. Even <laughs> worse. Go on. Um, the de-designation of the Quality Assurance Agency, so that's a higher education agency that's failed quite dramatically. Eligibility criteria for the commemorative nuclear test model, which was introduced in November to recognise the work of those who've helped establish our nuclear deterrence. Uh, the announcement of a new free port in the East Midlands, 25 million of seed funding, powering up Britain, which of course we saw a lot of yesterday. Uh, there was about 2,800 pages of that. And then from various civil service returns, we saw half a million pounds of taxpayer cash paid by Rishi Sunak, well, paid by the government on behalf of Rishi Sunak's private jet use. I'm still not done. Still <laughs> Oh, we can't put the music on again. We'll have to give. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should have spoken quick more. Yeah, we'll have to uh, give uh, Channel Four a lot more money if you have to play that music. It will take it out of your way. <laughs> just to be fine. Uh, now, a uh, couple of things I want to focus on. Age. You've got a story in the Times today based on some of the uh, some of what they tried to take out. Yeah, so uh, we saw a kind of rapid assessment earlier this week uh, from an independent aid uh, investigator which showed that about 3.5 billion of our foreign aid budget would be spent domestically. That's on in so-called in-donor costs, so the costs that we use to uh, accommodate ref- the rising number of refugee and asylum seekers in uh, Britain. Now, we knew that that would mean vast cuts, but then yesterday we saw in the Foreign Office allocation announced by uh, the Development Secretary Andrew Mitchell uh, that uh, where exactly those cuts were coming from. And our uh, bilateral aid next year that will be going to Africa has more than halved. 
which is a staggering cut. And aid experts uh, who I spoke to said that it radically, it's a complete decimation of our contributions to Africa. Uh, and it radically reorientates uh, what our foreign aid budget really means, which is for a huge amount of it to be spent domestically. Um, so is it saying, the story is we're going to be spending more aid here than we are in Africa. Yeah, and of course we wrote about this, yeah, yeah. Uh, Times wrote about this last year, uh, so we've known for a long time that the government would choose to count its costs in this way, but there's been a huge amount of pressure yeah, yeah. put on them to basically say, you don't need to count your costs in this way, and at the liaison committee uh, earlier this week, Rishi Sunak says, we're acting within the Overseas Development Assistant rules, there's nothing untoward here, but actually we're the only G7 country to count all of our costs uh, towards the aid budget in this way, and other countries like Australia and Sweden, there have been either more money that's uh, gone to towards housing those costs, uh, or they've just said you can't count these as part of the Overseas Development Assistant altogether. And subsequent clarifications from those in the OCD doing these rules have basically said, please be conservative about this. So it's yeah. definitely within the letter of the rules what the government's doing in counting a huge amount of domestic spend as foreign aid, but it's certainly not within the it's spirit pretty, of the rules. It's pretty striking though, James, we're spending more foreign aid in the UK than we are in Africa. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really make sense. And, you know, foreign aid is such an important part of our soft power as well. You know, it's not, you know, I mean, it's obviously important to help overseas countries, but there's a diplomatic reason to do it yeah, as yeah. well. And Especially also, there's the also a sort of addressing problem at, problems at source. The, the whole point of spending foreign aid, the, the very selfish reason for doing it, is you don't want the problems to end up literally on our shores. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the other thing, uh, the, the present, uh, Zelensky's gift... That was, that was smuggled out yesterday as well, wasn't it? The, the Rishi Sunak's not kept the gifts. So Liz Truss was the only person uh, to keep one of these gifts. And of course, uh, you know, prime ministers do get given official gifts all the time so that are logged in these, uh, in these civil servant documents. Yeah. But uh, the only gift that was kept was by Liz Truss and that was a gift from the Women's England football team. So everybody else uh, has chosen... So if it's over a certain amount, they have to, they actually, they they have have to, to register them, yeah. yeah. Well, on the subject of prime ministers, do you remember last week, James, we were talking about prime ministers? Yes, vividly. Robot prime ministers. So the time, so Times had got uh, an AI chatbot to write a speech for a prime minister. So I used another website, a text-to-speech website, to record it for us, and it sounded like this. I recognise that we face significant challenges ahead, but I'm confident that with your support and dedication, we can overcome these challenges. And so that was what it sounded like last week when I did it. But then the list, uh, a listener, Max, got in touch. Max Tappenden wrote in and said, that wasn't an AI voice. It's just a basic speech synthesizer. A real AI voice would be much less robotic and consistent. Happy to run it or any other text with a proper AI voice for you uh, if you'd like it a comparison. Well, he did. So this is Max's version of uh, the, the chatbot Prime Minister reading that speech. I recognise that we face significant challenges ahead. But I am confident that, with your support and dedication, we can overcome these challenges and build a better and more prosperous future for all our citizens. Thank you, and God bless the United Kingdom. Was, was that any better? That Sin was sinister. Do you think it was sinister? Yeah, I found that sinister. It was more like a baddie. The, the one that I did was like a nice old granddad type. It didn't sound like that robot would do, was too it sounded like the robot was too senile to do much dangerous robotic damage. <laughs> that robot knew what it was doing and I didn't like it. What do you think, Lara? Yeah, I thought the one that you played before was a bit more benevolent and doddery in this one. I mean, that voice was completely unplaceable. Can we have it there again, was... that second one? The, uh, the one that Max sent in. Can we have that clip again, the one that Max sent in? The, uh, the new robot Prime Minister, the frightening one. Here we go. I recognise that we face significant challenges ahead, but I am confident that, with your support and dedication... Yeah, there's definitely a sinister smile Oh, I really don't like that. It's giving me shivers. <laughs> all our citizens. Thank the... you, and God bless the United Kingdom. It's the weird calm as well. I yeah. don't like the calm. Yeah. 
Ugh. It makes Dominic Vile seem quite warm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but we've talked a lot about, I mean, Lara, there's been a lot of talk this week about regulating AI and all that. I mean, it, you can just about tell that that's not right, but we're not far off being able to write, get a computer to write a speech and a computer to deliver it and does not know who it is or where it's come from. No, you're right. And I think, I mean, the initial comfort of ChatGBT was that its data hadn't been, uh, it wasn't as recent as uh, even our last kind of two yeah. prime ministers, right? So if you put something in there for copy, you would still get Boris Johnson as yeah. a prime minister, which is in itself reassuring. Uh, and I suppose our politics is fast enough to mean that, at, yeah. least, for, at least in the meantime, we are more insulated from its more pernicious effects. But no, you're right. Um, Do where were you, James? Where was I? No, does it worry you? It, yeah, yes. Where, oh, where were you? Oh, my God, it terrifies me. Yeah, I'm, I, how long did it write a James Marriott column? And actually, I'm scared because this week was the first week that I was ever fooled by artificial intelligence. There was a picture of the Pope uh, circulating oh, on social yeah. media yeah. wearing an enormous white coat as if he was a sort of um, hip-hop artist, not, not a Pope. Yeah. And I believed that he was wearing this ridiculous coat. Yeah. And I had to be told by a little notification on Twitter that said it was fake news. It was fake news. And I was boasting to you last week about how I couldn't be fooled. Do you remember this? Yeah. I was saying, you can't get anything past me. Yeah. Practical jokes don't work. I'm and so sceptical. Well, and I'm then, glad, yeah, I'm glad I spent the next day I was like, the... oh God, the Pope is a rap artist now. But the best thing about that Pope in the big puffy white jacket was somebody retweeted the caption, Priest 17, which I thought was really good. Yeah, very good. Like the <laughs> now, James, we need to talk about your... Uh, in fact, it's not your column. It's your you review podcasts. I do, yes. You've never reviewed my podcast. Well, uh, I am sometimes I am sometimes a scathing podcast critic. So you may be relieved that I haven't yet. Well, explain. So you've yeah after today's. So you've reviewed something called Bad Dates with Jamila Jamil. Uh, you said the somewhat tone deaf air of the proceedings was perhaps to be expected from Jamil, who's an actress and activist in the modern sense of the word, meaning that she's rude about people on Twitter. So, James, what we thought we'd do is... Uh, have we got her on the line? Is Jam <laughs> Jamila, are you there? Hi. So, James, do you want to explain to Jamila, <laughs> Jamila uh, why you thought her podcast was so bad? Um, I, I think, in my defence, I'm, you know... It's the role of a podcast critic to tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what did you not like about it, James? Um, well, I'm a real campaign at the moment about celebrities being given podcasts... <laughs> And I had a big rant about Tom Daly's podcast um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And I just kind of feel like there are too many celebrities being given podcasts for no special reason. And I feel like... Do you want, do you want to say sorry to Jamila? Uh, I never apologise for my reviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, you know you said you couldn't be pranked. Yes. Of course that's not Jamila. No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't think it was. Amory, <laughs> you all right? I'm fine, yes. Oh, Hello. <laughs> go back to work. Go back to work. Uh, very good. Well, well done, James. You've got to, if you're, don't, do not cross uh, James Marriott, it turns out, because Jamila Jamil will, uh, uh, as Jamila Jamil will testify. Now, uh, the new First Minister of Scotland, Humza Yousaf, has unveiled his new government. And amongst his appointees is Emma Roddick, who was appointed as Minister for Equalities, Migration and Refugees. And she's the first person, we think, to serve in a government anywhere in the UK who was born after this. Yeah, after the 1997 general election rather than after D-Ream uh, actually released that. Although I suppose both, both are true. Uh, she's not a millennial, she's Generation Z. And Emma joins me now. Morning, Emma. Morning, thanks for having me back. Have you ever heard that song before? I've heard that song. I haven't had it put to me yet that um, <laughs> I was born after it, but... 
Um, yeah. So how how does it feel? You're just tell you, you're twenty seven. Is that right? Uh, 25. 25? 25? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so how does it feel to make it as a government minister at 25? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a massive honour. I obviously watched the, the cabinet coming together over the last few days and was just really excited to be asked to be a member of that team. And what, what, do you, what will you be doing? What's on your sort of to-do list as Minister for Qualities, Migration and Refugees? Um, well, first up, I've got a lot of reading to do. Um, <laughs> it was it was quite incredible. Um, I don't normally use paper, but I've got quite a mountain of it building up on my desk already. That's because you're a Gen Z, of course you don't use paper. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I keep saying I, I just need briefings on online. I'll yeah, I'll manage. Just, just send me a TikTok. That's all you need. That's all you need. <laughs> James, how old are you? I'm not. I'm not the, that young anymore. I'm thirty now. Yeah, you've, you've blown it. What you've, yeah. you've, you've, you've you've achieved so little. I know. How did, how, oh God! What were you doing when you were twenty-five? You weren't running a country. No, I was working in a bookshop. Were you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that sounds good as well. It was. It wasn't. It was. It was actually very. It was actually very boring. Why I became a journalist? But then you became a books editor. Yes. Well, yeah. books assistant, lackey, dog's body, really. Yeah. Um, with a slightly grander title than Lama. Applied. I'm twenty-six. And what were you doing? Oh, so I was working choice. for you. You're working for me. <laughs> even worse. Even worse. <laughs> even worse than being in a bookshop. That is even worse than being in a bookshop. What do you think you you bring to uh, the government and politics in general, Emma, by being 25? Um, well, I don't know that it's it's um, generally going to be that different to if I were doing it in five years. Um, I mean, I think I've been given this brief because of my particular background and interests. Um, I am a disabled person. I'm a member of the, the LGBT community. So it's it's a really personal one for me. And in terms of the, the rest of the brief, you know, I'm I'm very much uh, I think aligned with the the First Minister on we need to do so much better by the the um, people who make Scotland their home who choose to come here. And being Highlands and Islands I, I know that we desperately need people who are coming to work in rural areas um, and bring bring their expertise. And um, it's interesting, you, you talk about you know, paper. Have you noticed any other differences coming as a Gen Z into politics? I mean, the fact that politics is basically the only place anywhere where it still wears a tie and uses bits of paper. <laughs> what else have you sort of noticed about politics you think might could be dragged into the 21st century? Um, I do have to, to Google some of the things my colleagues say sometimes. Like, um, like I, I had to check like uh, the other day oasis. somebody. Well, the, <laughs> uh, the other day somebody uh, was talking about having uh, one of the other MSPs on speed dial, and I thought I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> it's a good point. Said, actually. Oh, this is a phrase that everyone uses. It doesn't make any sense. When was the know, last time anyone said, handed like, someone just, on speed dial? No, you press a number. I'm like, right, but you, you just press their name. That's... Yeah, both, both, you'll be pleased to know that both James and Lara are also looking baffled. So when you had an old um, landline phone on your desk, you could pre-program people's numbers. Who did yeah. you have? Well, if you were like at the office, you'd have like the news desk. Or like people yeah. just phoned a lot. You could have them pre-programmed. Or you could have, I don't know, your parents or whatever if you were at home. Fascinating. So you didn't have to, another world. the time you could save rather than having to press 0207, you know, which you used to have to do on a telephone. Wow, God, yeah. imagine. Or yeah. worse, have you, have you ever seen a phone with a rotary thing on it, Emma? When, like, I've, I've seen it in, like, TV. Mu museums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? What else have you had to Google? I'm really taken by the fact you've had to Google what older colleagues say in the office. 
Oh, I would have to go back and read through my Google searches. <laughs> and probably a lot in there the last few days. Well, so. now, listen, now you're in the government, you're going to have to be much more careful about your Google searches. Uh, that's all I'm Emmett, best of luck with it all. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. You've come on quite a bit in the last year, so it's really good, really good to speak to you. And uh, yeah, do let us know any other Gen Z discoveries about the state of politics. We're really good. <laughs> Emmett, really good to be here. Emma I'll, I'll take some notes. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. Keep it updated. Uh, Minister for Equalities, Migration and Refugees. Last thing I want to ask you both about. Um, should I be allowed to retire early because I didn't go to university? Still on the front of the Times today. Absolutely. Just <laughs> because <laughs> you want my job. <laughs> I just want you to be happy. Well, you've got a funny way of going about it. What about you, James? Yeah, Lara, you... Lara and I will take it. Do you yes. think... Do you um... think... <laughs> Yeah, no, I think I think I think there is. I think there's graduates would work for longer under plans to allow people in manual jobs to claim their state pensions earlier. I think there's sense in that policy. I mean, no one would describe what I'm doing as a manual job. But... Well, when you're bouncing around in your chair a bit, and yeah, you know, a bit of bit yeah. of that. James Marriott and Lara Spirit there. And of course, you can read the stories we were discussing if you just hit the links in the podcast description. To read them, of course, you need a Times subscription. You just need to go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we're in the archive. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. What happens to the news when it stops being new? When yesterday's newspaper is wrapping up the fish and chips or you've moved on from whatever you were reading online, what happens to it all then? Well, I've come to the Times Archive to have a route around in decades, centuries even, of photos, newspaper cuttings, historical letters and artefacts. I'm joined by the archivist, Nick Mays. Nick, what is in the Times Archive? Basically, the Times Archive comprises its back files, picture collection, which has about 50 million negatives in it. And then we, almost uniquely, um, have all documents, or just a lot of documents and artefacts relating to the paper's history. And I have to say, it looks exactly like I'd hope a an archive would. Rows and rows of filing cabinets, every possible service covered in books and photos and cuttings and yellowed paper. It, it, it feels like a proper history of the times going all the way back to 1785. It does. The archive itself has been um, around as an organised part of the paper since the 1930s. It was actually put together formally for the writing, beginning of the writing of the history of the Times, which began in the early 1930s. Although, actually, we have a letter from the Rome correspondent in the 1890s referring to the office archives. So the actual concept of keeping material goes back into the 19th century. Professional hoarders, we love them, because yeah. uh, all this, all that history. So it was what about then coming up to 100 years ago, this idea of the archive starts, starts formulating, but then quite quickly we get into the Second World War and, and disaster strikes. Yes, um, the Times unfortunately was hit by a bomb on the night of September the 25th, 1940. Fortunately, it didn't actually wipe out the archives, it didn't even wipe out the edition that was being printed that night. The bomber hit in the early hours of the morning, presses were already running, 
Fortunately, the presses were housed in the basement of the building, which was a large concrete structure built to take the weight of the presses, not as a bomb shelter, but it served admirably as one for the staff. And, as if by magic, right behind us, here on the table, you've pulled out some documents, photos. Tell me what we've got here and what it, what it tells us about the story of the night the Times was bombed. Well, if we start with the photographs, there are a bunch of exterior shots that were taken after the event, showing the crater just outside the building where the bomb struck. Fortunately, it exploded on contact rather than burrowing in anywhere, so it didn't cause worse destruction. The photographs, which you'll see on the inside, show a lot of destruction, but it's actually relatively superficial. So you can see it's, it's a posh building, isn't it, with the Times logo on the top. Well, let's have a look through. Well, it's amazing, the damage. It's just all, you know, it's all the windows blown, yeah, yeah. things like that. But fortunately, they didn't destroy the building. And you mentioned that the, the paper kept on printing, that the, the, the news was, was uninterrupted. Yes, we stopped printing for about 18 minutes. Firstly, to check that there would be no injuries amongst the staff. Most of the staff were in the basement. All the staff were okay, so we then made sure we had intact electricity and paper supplies, and they haven't been damaged. Yeah. They were fine, presses were okay. 18 minutes later, we started printing again. We didn't even lose that edition, let alone the night's print run. Do we think that the Times was the target, or was it just bombs are being dropped on London and the Times is in London? I doubt it was a target, um, if for no other reason than um, apparently Goebbels read the Times every day. Oh, so I'd imagine he'd have been rather annoyed. We, won't, we won't, probably won't put that in the next marketing campaign, but it's interesting. It's an interesting fact. Now, what's this? This is interesting. This is, this is one of the photographs showing the destruction inside, and this is actually a, a splendid collection of three chaps, all in their tin hats, with a scene of destruction around them, all with their thumbs up, looking very British, um, and f- you know, full of that sort of World War Two spirit. Nothing is going to get us down. So there's a sort of there's a desk in the middle with some books on uh, and some papers, but around them there's some of the ceilings come in. There's a bookcase sort of leaning in. There's sort of just rubble and dust and paperwork all around them. But yeah, in the middle of it all, I'd say two of them are enthusiastically putting their thumbs up. The, ch- the chap in the middle doesn't look very happy about what's happened to his office. No, I'm not quite sure who. We haven't identified all of them. It's possible he was uh, there at the time. Yeah, maybe someone's all just more upset. That's his desk. So you mentioned the Times continued to print, but it couldn't report the news the Times had been bombed. No, it uh, it wasn't able to report at all. Wartime censorship precluded such things. So it was actually two and a half weeks before the Times was allowed to report, by which stage the Germans knew that the Times had been hit from other sources and were making gleeful comments about how they'd knocked the Times out which, of course, they hadn't. Now, my eye has been caught by this next thing. Is I can see the, the, the Downing Street Prime Ministerial crest on the top of that. What's this? This is a letter from Winston Churchill, written oh, yeah. to the proprietor of the Times, Yeah, dated the 10th of October, 1940. Can I pick it up? Yes. I mean, it is in a plastic wallet, so I promise I won't get my big dirty things over it. So it says, 10 Downing Street, Whitehall, 10th of October, 1940. My dear Astor, as Astor owned the Times. Yes. Uh, congratulations on the remarkable way in which the Times has carried on in face of all the damage and discomfort caused by the bombing of Printing House Square. None of your readers could discover from the paper that your editorial and management departments have been destroyed. The resourcefulness and adaptability of your staff are beyond praise, and it's hand-signed Winston Churchill. It's very splendid. The letter was actually written with the intention that it would be published alongside the report of the bombing, evidently. And I suspect of all the many complaints and notes and phone calls that Times editors have had from Prime Ministers over the years, that was one that was pretty straightforward and the editor could happily accept. Oh, yes. And, I mean, unfortunately, we've never had another letter from another Prime Minister with that sort of same sentiment at the end. (laughs) 
Now, what's this big, badly damaged book in front of us? Um, this is one of the few surviving cuttings books that the archive maintained at the time. So this is one of the books that could have been in this room, which is in this photo. It's a big old thick, five or six inches thick, big leather-bound thing. The sort of thing you'd have in a, I don't know, a Cluedo game or something. Yeah. You could clobber someone with that. It's sort of dark green leather, but it's difficult to see what, what's in it because the spine is absolutely battered. From Has that got, it's got sort of bits of rubble? It's got bits of something in there. Yeah. I think, I think we found bits of glass in it before. It's got a hugely dented front where something's gashed through it. Yeah. It's really quite impressive, but the interior of it is absolutely fine. It's in there. You are. It's it's, it's all the reports from what 1837, 1937. Yeah, and then they carried on using it after the bombings. And so this is where, because obviously now, if I want to find something that the Times reports before, I'll look on the internal system. Have a quick search. You can go on the Times.co.uk forward slash archive, and any Times subscriber can look at that. Pre all of that, if you wanted to remember, what was the Times reported about the Times in? 1937, you had to go and have a look in one of these big books. There were two ways. You either went to the Cuttings books or you went to the Index. Times is one of the papers that has been indexed in its history. So at least you had that means yeah. of doing it. We had these for countries, subjects. And so this is where I would go and say, I'm doing something on Boris Johnson's school life. There'd be a folder with all the... Every time Boris Johnson at school would be mentioned, or useful bits anyway, they'd be put in there. Yes, depending on the... I'm sorry, Boris Johnson has a whole host of cuttings files. <laughs> Other people, Princess Wales, and Diana was another one who had massive cuttings files. Yeah. Uh, other people just have one file. And then maybe if they got more famous or influential, you'd start cutting it up into subsections. Yes, I mean, as, as the need arises or um, whatever, you get to three, four and five wives, you either have cuttings files in each one or one file on wives. Yeah, yeah. Right, so that was the, that's the, that's the Second World War, and the fact the time survived and it kept on coming out, even if the books and the from the archive are a bit damaged. Um, I can't come to the archive and not ask you about Tutankhamun and the Times' involvement in that. Yes, I mean Tutankhamun is one of the great stories associated with the Times, and the Times' name has remained attached to it ever since. And explain what it was at the time. The Times' involvement. Carnarvon was very concerned once he learned from Carter that he had found a tomb that the world's media was going to just descend on Luxor and be all over the tomb, stop them being able to work properly, just get in the way. So he wanted to have a conduit. And as people didn't have PR teams in those days, he decided that the Times was an excellent intermediary. The news would go to them. They would then exclusively syndicate the news and the pictures of the excavation story out to newspapers around the world. But we got the scoop. We got the scoop. Okay, so what have we got here then that you can show me? So let's start at the beginning of the story. This is a very unprepossessing type copy of a memo from the editor to the day editor on the 14th of November 1922, notifying him that uh, Lord Carnarvon is leaving the following day for Egypt and there's been this discovery of this tomb which is untouched and apparently royal in the Valley of the Kings and he is anxious for us to have the first and exclusive news of the discovery and of the contents of the tomb when it is opened. So this is the very beginning yeah. of the process. Carnarvon then goes out to Egypt. Everything is verified, and yes, it is what they think it is. And what's this? This is, this is sort of a much larger document. This, then, is the next stage of the story. This is the agreement between Carnarvon and the Times for that... Um, this is the contract for the scoop. This, this is, is the contract for the scoop. Stories turn up immediately because they're sent by telegraph. So we're publishing stories the day after, or no more than two days after, 
being written in Egypt. Photographs take about two weeks to come back. So what did we do? Did we hang on to the scoop and wait for no, the pictures? We no. broke it immediately. No, we had to break everything immediately because the the words were get out. Yeah. If we weren't doing it, Reuters or somebody else would yeah. be there. There were other yeah. newspapers were fed up with the fact the Times had got this scoop <laughs> and tried to break it. A fine journalistic tradition. Yes. Cool. Yeah. What we do have in the archive, which is absolutely wonderful, is a number of Carnarvon's own handwritten reports. Oh, wow. Um, and this is probably the most wonderful of the lot. I find it most difficult to write about or describe what I saw and felt when I entered the inner chamber of the tomb of Tutankhamun. For a surety, I have never dreamt that I should gaze upon the amazing sight which met my eyes. Amazing. Of course, this cost an absolute fortune. We've got all the accounts and the amount of money we spent on getting the story back in telegraph and in postage and everything else was just enormous. The Times actually made a loss on, mm-hmm. on the process. Now, my eyes have been caught, drawn too. So this is a note from February 1923. The expenses are the devil. The amount of money that goes in daily boat and donkey hire and postage, especially photographic plates, is horrid. I mean, it, <laughs> anyhow, I'm doing my very best, he says. Yes. In the end, I think, although the manager is always concerned about costs, <laughs> managers and managing editors have yeah. always been that way inclined. What they wouldn't have known at the Times at that moment was the connection that would continue. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've paid for itself in publicity over the years. Incredible expenses, donkey hire and postage and boats and all sorts. And then my eye is drawn to the next thing, which is the exact opposite of great expense. Actually, it's to see something in the archive. I was there when this happened. So this was in 2018, the height of Brexit shenanigans. What was going to happen with Theresa May? Could she get her deal through? What would happen if she loses the vote? Does she go back to Brussels? And um, Henry Zeffman, who listeners will know, is now associate political of the Times, was asked to try and sketch all this out. And I think he started with like a notepad and he realised that wouldn't work. And ended up getting, it's a sort of, it's the cardboard from a stiff A3 envelope. And this is now in the archive. I suppose at the time I thought, what do you want that bit of old drawing from Henry for? But actually this is because in a hundred years' time, people want to know how the Times was reporting Brexit. And there it is in Henry's slightly illegible scrawl. Yes, I mean, it looks, when you look at the finished thing, it looks like a piece of wonderful graphics yeah. work. What you don't see is the thought process behind it. And what we have, as you say, is not one, but actually version version one and then 2.0 next to it of his attempt to get the um, the flowchart right with all the consequences. Oh, it's a whole, I'm getting PTSD just looking at this, what it was like in 2018. Because the first one, D, deal fails, and he's got three branches. The 48 letters go in, May quits. And then this one has got May calls an election, second vote without changes, and they all join up and flow round. I mean, actually, I suppose it, this must be quite rare these days that you get hard... You know, everything's in WhatsApp groups and Google Docs and whatever else. How much hard, you know, physical material do you get coming into the archive now? Far less than we used to. Yeah. There are still journalists who use notepads and things like that, um, surprisingly. Yeah. But yes, I mean, things like this are a wonderful mix of the old and new. Yeah. But it's an amazing thing to see it. I mean, everywhere I look, there are slightly yellowed uh, newspapers. And right laid out in front of me, not just uh, newspapers, but amazing photographs this from 1933 mj jennings content specialist at the archive is with me what is it that we're looking at here 
What you're actually looking at here is an original bound volume of the Times. So tell us about this story then. What was the Times reporting in April April the 24th, 1933? It was the very first flight over Mount Everest. It was a big photography exclusive. Yeah. So photography still... We didn't do enough in... expeditions at the time. So we ought to be doing sending something to the moon or something. Back then, <laughs> they were like one every other week, it seemed. And particularly air travel and air flights... Aerial photography was becoming a big, big thing. So you mentioned photography. What's this enormous contraption here? This is one of two cameras that existed for this expedition. This one is one that survives in our archive. It's a Williamson P14 camera. And what it is, is exactly a very, very, very heavy glass plate camera. Glass plate rather than film. Yeah, so you'll be familiar with like camera film, roll film that we all remember pre-digital. Well, our younger listeners might not, but yeah. They might not, and they often, they often don't when they come to visit us. Even before then, there were glass plates, yeah. and that was photography. And that was photography at the times from the 20s into the mid to late 50s. Those were the cameras they used. So this is the type of camera that would have been used by our press photographers, but this is like a military-grade version, basically. So it, what, tell you what it looks like. It looks like a big metal case around a normal camera. Yeah. And at the back there is the spring-loaded mechanism where you would literally load your glass plate. Yeah. You would then close it, load it, take your images, expose the image, take it out very delicately, load it back into your film box, and take it back to the darkroom for developing, printing, eventually gets on the page in paper. The difference with this is that whole process was done while flying over Mount Everest, so... (laughs) It has its own complications. And and it's not like, you know, these days you could, you know, and you see the sports photographers, they basically just hold the the button down and get, yeah. take as many as you like. They quite often don't even have to be there. You're um, flying over Everest. You've got one chance. Yeah. I mean, initially when we looked at this camera, we, we assumed they had preloaded loads of film, but it appears they didn't. They were, they were literally having to do it. They could have been up there and come back and they hadn't got anything. Yeah. And I think on the first demo flight, they encountered difficulties and they had to go up again. And also amazing about this is that for millions of people, this is the first time they've ever seen, well, almost everyone on Earth has never seen Everest. I think that's the key about this thing. It doesn't look remarkable by today's standards, but you have to go back in time. This hadn't been seen before. It was another worldwide first for the Times report. Can I pick that up? Yeah, you can. You're more than welcome to. You'll need two hands. It is heavy. Yeah. God, it's really heavy. Yeah. It's a much heavier version of, of, of a typical camera for its and time. So you're sort of, so you're in a, literally in a plane. Yeah. Or going up. Hand holding. Lots of people going up there would be frightened enough just yeah. being in the plane. Yeah. Flying over Everest. Never mind trying to operate. Them. Yeah. Dealing with the weather conditions, dealing with the practicalities of the space involved. And it's one of the few cameras that we've got in the archive to this day. So it's a, it's a precious item that we, we like to show. Now, just finally, MJ, my eye is drawn to these photos over here because I can recognise these are offices in the Houses of Parliament. Yep, it's the Times office in the House of Parliament. And these are, it's actually a print file. So we've got many boxes out in the archive yeah. that are all to do with the Times. Yeah. You know, different departments at the Times, different products at the Times launch. There's a, a subfile called the Parliamentary Office. And um, these are some of the prints. So that one you're looking at, taken in January 1950. Just trying to work out where that is because, so I recognise the windows. The same windows that you yeah, see. So they look more. They look more like I remember. Although I think the Times at one point was also based in what is now the Hansard offices. So maybe that's why I don't recognise that. 
I mean, what is so funny, actually, is that how little the offices have changed. They've still got the wood panelling. They've still got the mock gothic windows. The desks are slightly more modern. There are slightly more women, not many more. But, um, yeah, you can see sort of men all sitting at their desks with just rows of typewriters. And then, so then you jump up to, so what, when they, they look slightly more modern. Yeah, so we're, talk, we're moving into the 70s now, June 78. Again, a lot of these reporters aren't, aren't named, but you'll probably recognise a few faces. Yeah, you can really tell, you can tell the jump uh, to the 70s because there's a lot more beards. Yeah. Beards and quite wide ties. And wild hair. And you know, I mean, an awful lot of people. Just one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in that one. I mean, there's a good te- dozen people in that one. Yeah, and it's, it looks like a busy space. You know, you've got these old bell volumes, you've filing cabinets. In many ways, it's like a mini archive yeah. in Parliament. You need to come over and do some new ones of the... The grotty office in Parliament now. How does it compare? The office in Parliament now is a sort of temporary Porter Gabin style building on the roof. And it's full of old books and rubbish. And the carpet is disgusting. So yeah, it would make a nice addition to your um Yeah. To your collection. We should send one of our photographers. But yeah, it's amazing. And it's just what what a what a fascinating insight to the fact that the archive contains obviously huge moments in history, but also small moments in uh, the history of the times as well. Really half joking, I suppose, about taking a photo of the old office. But um, Nick, what do you do these days when everything's done in WhatsApp, Google Docs, Twitter? How much of that can you capture? How much of that do you capture to add to the archive so that in a hundred years' time, people can go and look at the archive and work out how we were reporting on the pandemic and Brexit and Party Gate or whatever it might be? It's a huge challenge. Part of the challenge is the fact that we produce so much digital content on different platforms across all our titles and um, have done on different platforms since the beginning. So capturing just even our own internal content is hard enough. Once you get out onto socials, you're at the mercy of third-party systems and, quite frankly, as long as they exist. Um, You know, if Elon Musk shuts down Twitter tomorrow... My tweets will be gone. All your tweets, all our tweets. You need to start printing off all, the whole of my Twitter and adding it to your collection. That's it is a problem about how you then capture, because yeah. you know, if you go back and try and open up a Word document you wrote 20 years ago, it's going to come up and say you can't open that, yeah. now, even on Word. Yeah. So this is a huge challenge for archivists um, in all countries. Oh. Oh, well, this is this is what I thought an archive was going to look like every day. This is rows and rows and rows and rows in every direction, above, below, brown cardboard boxes. And what's in all these boxes? Well, if you look down this aisle, yeah, right down to the end there, those glass plates we were talking about earlier, yeah. they're negatives. Each box, if I quickly open this one as an example. It's got lots of small boxes in it. And within those, there's usually approximately... 25 glass plates and these are from 1922 and it goes all the way down to the end yeah it turns the bend yeah. back around this side wow all the way to here and the next row along and that's how many glass plates millions uh millions potentially when yeah. you're counting them individually yeah. and look behind me these boxes what's in these boxes here well are they a, printed photos yeah so we've got prints and yeah. negatives so yeah. the negatives we treat as that they're our source yeah. they're our most valuable commodity really because you go back to them to scan we, we, we seem to have found ourselves stood next to the boxes marked murder. Yeah. 
murder, then by county, so this is murder by county, Yorkshire, Wales, Ireland, more Yorkshire, London, foreign murders, London murders. Yeah, there's quite a lot of murder. There's an awful lot of murder. Lockerbie there, uh, Sarah, pa- Sarah Payne, Harold Shipman. Yeah, we have a subsection for murders in the archive you stumbled across. <laughs> um, and we have, But then underneath we've got medical, we've got mu- music, people. Yep. It goes on and on, on, on and on and on. And each person will have a personal folder. So, for instance, if you were in the news 20 years ago yeah. and you were photographed, you'll have your own print folder. Yeah. Within that, there'll be all the darkroom prints that were ever made of you for the edition. To go alongside that, we have you have your own personal cuttings file. We still, believe it or not, use these today. Times obituaries love them because yeah. they're looking for those unique lines about a person's life or the little bit of colour or event that people might have forgotten an interview that hasn't made Wikipedia you know and they're in there so they've kind of proved their value in different ways down the bottom you'll see bound copies um, sort of leather bound copies leather bound copies of the times by different editions yeah yeah all of our titles are kept and you can see the scale of the archive I mean I literally can't see in any direction where it ends above us rows rows of boxes of papers Huge long um, corridors here. What amazing! What amazing, amazing thing! Um, I don't envy you either having to try to find something or or packing it all up. You learn it as you go along. <laughs> Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Oh, what a brilliant thing! MJ Jennings, uh, Nick Mace. Thanks so much for taking me into quite literally the Times Archive. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>